Okay, it's the Messiah Community Radio Talk Show. My name is Michael James Lauren, your host. We have a real special guest tonight. He is the author of The Recovery-Minded Church, Loving and Ministering to People with Addiction. His name is Jonathan Benz, and uh, welcome to the program. Thank you, Michael. And just so you know, Jonathan, he's a clinician, public speaker, ordained minister, and certified addictions professional who serves the recovery community nationally. And he used to reside in South Florida like me, but now he's in New York City, the Big Apple, huh? I'm back up north. (laughs) It's a good place, and there's no shortage of clients. We know that for sure in that area. And um, you've really touched on a subject that not many people go to. It's, uh, you know, with the church and accepting people who are addicts, and people who have substance abuse issues, sometimes they could be shunned, unfortunately. But uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the understanding of the book and, and why you wrote it. I was really blessed uh, in my home growing up. My father's a minister. Uh, in fact, I come from a, a line of ministers. But uh, we had uh, a mentor and a, uh, a person in our congregation who um, was in recovery from alcoholism, and he had uh, what they would call an AA. He was an old-timer, and he uh, befriended my my father and my family, uh, he and his wife, and as well as other people in the recovery community. And so uh, growing up in my home, uh, people with addiction were not bad. Uh, They were not sinful. They were not horrible, um, you know, drunkards on the street. They were actually friends, people that we worshipped with, and uh, even mentors. So I was very uh, fortunate to be raised in a home where um, people with addiction were seen as just like anyone else. Um, In fact, they could even be a mentor. So I'm really grateful uh, to my father who uh, in the 80s was preaching that it's not a sin to be an addict. There might be sinful consequences, but recovery is possible. And that this is a, a, a state of being that must be treated um, with various forms, uh, sometimes even medication if necessary, um, but most of all be treated spiritually as well. So that was some of my journey and how I fell into this kind of work. It was always sort of there. Didn't plan on doing it, but ended up doing it. And uh, I love working with people with addiction. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of people who suffer from it. And so uh, any personal experience with addiction yourself or no? Well, I sometimes I, I like to say like I dodged that bullet. Um, it, definitely, there was addiction around addiction uh, with family members, extended family um, was always around uh, people who had it, and was told growing up, uh, "You better be careful because the way you are, you'll end up right there." <laughs> and so um, I, I was really blessed uh, that I was able to uh, probably growing up. Uh, not ex- not not end up addicted because I just was scared to death of the effect of drugs and alcohols because I uh, I saw the the destruction um, but was surrounded with people and so when I f- came into the work um, oftentimes I, s- I say to people uh, look I don't know exactly um, your journey with substances but I certainly identify with the emotions that go along with it I've had moments of hopelessness of despair, of great pain, of fear, anxiety. And uh, I think that uh, when we view uh, sort of our spiritual journey and our journey of healing and recovery from anything, with that, we talk about uh, we identify with the individual rather than comparing ourselves to the person saying, well, uh, you're different than me. Well, I think in terms of the human nature, we're all very much alike. 
Yes, that's true. We're all pretty broken, that's for sure. And uh, interesting, just part of your book here, it says loving and ministering to people with addiction. And sometimes people in the church really don't get that of how to love and minister to people with addiction. Because in your book that, uh, you know, you say that we tend to point the finger and say that addiction is a sin and condemn the person rather than, you know, bring them into love. And so that kind of struck a chord with me. That's something that uh, you would like a little bit more of a sensitivity in the church, is that correct? That's correct. I think oftentimes we uh, rank sins, and uh, say, and m- much of those rankings of sin, I think, are, are culturally bound, or they're cultural nor- uh, notions based on maybe uh, the particular kind of church or denomination that we worship in. And so we might view uh, addiction as being worse, and certainly the consequences of addiction are devastating. Uh, We know that people die every day in this country, uh, whether they're in the church or not. People die from overdoses, from alcoholism, from prescription pain meds. And so I think when we start uh, to minister to someone, we need to really level the the playing field and say, hey, just as you you mentioned earlier, we all suffer from issues of brokenness in our lives. And uh, brokenness is brokenness. Um, The consequences of that broken condition can vary. Uh, but I think that it enables us to have a more compassionate view to the individual who is suffering. Yes, and you know, you mentioned also, it says in your book, success has far more to do with the sheer presence of love, a love that is genuine, relentless, and on display when two or more are gathered in Jesus' name. And I should say amen to that, <laughs> because uh, love can really heal a lot of people, and and that seems that if that's missing, I think people with addiction feel a sense of guilt and shame kind of built in, and so uh, people who have substance abuse issues, they're not used to feeling love, are they? Uh, they, they are not accustomed to unconditional love, generally speaking, and uh, usually are more accustomed to shame and fear, uh, and I think that when congregations become places where we shame people or ostracize them or say you're different, we are really um, going against the basic message of Jesus in the Gospels, which is uh, love your neighbor. Uh, uh, in fact, you know, Jesus even went so far as to say love your enemies. So if you're serious about the things that Jesus said, uh, we must create uh, places of safe spaces of, of love, unconditional love, acceptance, uh, where we wrestle with the issues, but we love people. Uh, and I, I found that a loving, shame-free community is what really has helped people recover, uh, the people who I've watched uh, recover and maintain uh, lasting sobriety. Yeah, and you have a chapter here on deprogramming shame and finding ways to normalize the experience of addiction. Now, number one, you know, we're all broken people. And so we all should really be in the same category and not say, well, you know, we're us and then there's those people who suffer from addiction. And you say that shame gains power when those who struggle with addiction start to believe that, well, this is what they're thinking. If they only knew I struggled with X, they wouldn't accept me. Uh, Deep feelings of shame and, uh, you know, having a safe environment to really share brokenness is something that you also mentioned that may be missing in the church, that we really should be more vulnerable and transparent with our broken feelings and maybe... You know, it's said that uh, we're only as sick as our secrets. And uh, that which we keep hidden, we uh, not only do we continue to suffer from it, it becomes uh, even more intense and the impact uh, all the more profound in our lives. 
And so part of this thing of creating a safe space for people to share and tell their stories uh, is fostering a place where it's okay to be vulnerable. Now, uh, one of the things that, that I've learned is uh, you, we have to tell our stories to people who've earned the right to tell our stories. Uh, I'm grateful for the, the work of uh, the researcher, uh, Brene Brown, who's done a lot of work uh, with shame. And one of the things that she says is tell your, people to the, to, tell your story to the people who've earned the right to hear it. And I think sometimes we want to tell our stories to people who they've not journeyed with this long enough. So I always tell people, whether they are suffering from addiction or addictions in their family and it's a loved one, you have to be careful because not everyone is going to respond uh, to you with open arms. So listen intently, and then when you feel that, go ahead and take the risk uh, and find the safe people in your congregation or in your community uh, with whom you can share your story. Because there's something about telling our stories uh, and journeying together, especially in spiritual community, that's how... Uh, healing, I believe, really uh, continues to grow in our lives. Yes, Jonathan, also people who suffer from addiction, there's a falling down, it seems, over and over again. I mean, we, we might do it once, if you will, uh, people who don't suffer from addiction, but uh, I guess the shame and the guilt is that it happens a lot where you get clean, uh, you go through detox, and then you fall down again, and you have to pick yourself up again, and you fall down, and it's it's almost... You know, you begin to expect uh, failure. You begin to uh, – that must be uh, very, very difficult for how, – how does the uh, addict get over that? You know, you know the, the medical community uh, defines addiction as a chronic brain disease of circuitry. And we do know through brain scans, and which is interesting, that – uh, they're, they're oftentimes the, the brain circuitry in a person who has addiction, that their brain processes things differently. That's sort of the layman's way of, of, uh, of saying it. And so because it's a chronic, ongoing condition, it takes time for the person to find recovery. When that person, have, if they have a lapse or a slip or a relapse, oftentimes we're very quick to shame them and say, oh, you messed up. Um, and, and one of the things that we have to remember is that we all mess up in different areas. And part of the gospel message is one of grace and giving people room to uh, slip, lapse, relapse. Not that we're setting them up for it, but that if it happens, we, uh, I call it, we have to normalize that experience a little bit. Because if we make it a big deal, we stigmatize them even more. And then that shame cycle continues in the individual's life. So people of faith. Um, you know, especially in Christian communities, we have a lot of wonderful uh, spiritual principles and, and beliefs that can help people break that shame cycle. I think the main thing is that if, if someone does have a lapse or relapse, that we don't um, fall apart, that we're there to say, hey, okay, this happened. What can we learn from this experience? Let's pick ourselves up now and let's move on together in this experience. Yes, and Jonathan, the um, the falling down part, I mean, let's be honest, Christians never fall down, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just the people who suffer from addiction. I mean, uh, when you think about being more open to failure where, you know, Peter failed and uh, all kinds of people fail, we always deny the Lord every day and we, we pick ourselves back up. But somehow when you look at addiction, it's an easy target, you know, to say to that person, well, you suffer from that. It's more, vi you know, visible. But what about... You know, the person who's refined and suffers from pornography or has other kind of addictions, you know, I think if more people were open to the uh, 
falling down that we do. We all fall short of the glory of God. Perhaps that we would welcome each other instead of really pointing the finger at that person who just fell down. We don't recognize that. We all fall down. Uh, you mentioned something in your book and really what not to say to recovering addicts. And this is what uh, I'm sure helpful Christians listening right now <laughs> have said these words and maybe regretted it. But one is to point to the person and say addiction is a sin. Uh, the other one, addiction is God's punishment or a sign of God's judgment. Could you just address those two and then we'll work on the rest? Sure. You know, the first one that addiction is a sin, I actually, um, I, I, I've, I think I've angered, uh, uh, or, or some, let me put it this way. Some people have responded to me in a less than loving manner when I've asserted that. And uh, one of the, the approaches that I found helpful in uh, watching people recovery and being a part of the recovery process uh, is, that, is that if we tell them that addiction is a sin, then they feel so fundamentally flawed. Uh, it's almost like it reinforces a hopelessness. So what we want to do is we want to separate this disease state from the person. Uh, if you don't like the word disease state, call it you want to th this pattern of behaving and acting or this pattern of thinking, behaving, and acting. Uh, we want to separate uh, this condition from who the person is. So if we, as people of faith, believe that um, the person is created in the image of God and that God creates the person, God created uh, the man and woman and called them good. So I always say we start from a place of original blessing. So before anything happens, God calls us good, and rarely does God call us bad. And so one of the things that I do with individuals is I look at them and I say, you are a good person who is suffering from a, a horrendous condition that's destroying your life and having really negative consequences for yourself, for you and for those around you. It's amazing that when we look at someone and we say, you are good and God calls you good, uh, they begin to rise to that standard. But if I say to that person, you are bad, that shame overtakes them. Uh, and we see this with kids. If we say you're such a uh, if a little boy or little girl, you know, is not doing something right, and we say, you're such a naughty boy or such a naughty little girl, um, naughty children do naughty things. But I find that uh, good kids do good things. And I think sometimes that's how we are as adults. So we have to be careful on the language that we, we use. Uh, you know, is addiction a sin? Well, I would say no more than, um, you know, being a diabetic is a sin. Um, or having cancer is a sin. These are states of disease and disorder in us. Um, what is, I think, a better way to say it is um, you are a person who is suffering, and this nature of suffering within you causes sinful consequences. So if you leave your child in the car seat when you go into buy alcohol in the liquor store, uh, and they're in the heat um, in the hot car, and something happens, is that sinful? Absolutely. But I would say it's more a sinful consequence uh, than actually the person being um, completely uh, a terrible person, if that makes sense. It makes sense. And I think also the people wear these titles, like you say, if you say to someone who is an addict, and by the way, I just want to ask, uh, is that true you don't call an addict an addict to their face? You call you say substance use, substance abuse, or right. you shouldn't you shouldn't call an addict an addict. Is that right? Well, I, 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 I tend to refer to people as they refer to themselves mm -hmm. uh, for the most part. So uh, when I worked in a treatment, in a treatment center, um, there were certain terms I wouldn't use. One of them was junkie. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that's a very um, pejorative, shaming term. And I would say we're not going to use that term. If you want to call yourself an addict, you can. If you want to call yourself a person with addiction or a person with substance use disorders, that's fine. So I let the individual take the lead on how they like to be called. And uh, and, and and so what they're comfortable with, it, then, then, then I go with that. Okay, that's uh, fair I, enough. I think that's a, I'm glad you asked that because I think that's a big thing for people in churches is how do we refer to people? Um, I've worked with people who don't like the term addict because they find it limiting. Um, other people like to be called addict because it reminds them of this chronic state that they always have to be mindful of. All right. Well, that's something I want to address right there because you know if you say or if that person says, hi, my name is Phil – and I'm a good person, but I just kind of suffer from this disease. But sometimes you actually think that alcoholic or addict is that person's last name. If you go to some meeting, the person says, I name it, my name is Phil Alcoholic. And I, I would think that maybe is that the person's last name? My name is Don Addict. <laughs> and uh, that's not your last name. But, boy, they, they can really kind of wear that title. And uh, Is that fair? That's something that you mentioned in the book that you're not really sure if that's helpful or not. Yeah, it really depends. You know, uh, I will say that, that you know, I, the 12 step programs um, use that language uh, because it helps the person to remind uh, to remind themselves where they've come from. And that this is something that uh, for, for the alcoholic person, if they take one drink, that's it. Um, you know, we say, uh, you, know, you know, one is too much, you know, and a, and a hundred is never enough. I think it is one of the, the slogans that they say. Uh, but I really let people take the lead with how they want to be referred. Um, it can be limiting, but for some people, that term actually is very liberating to be able to admit it. And uh, for oftentimes for a person in recovery, just the courage to admit it is what helps them, uh, and the courage to be honest is what helps them recover. Yeah, you know, uh, I had a conversation with someone about this, and I don't mean to take a left turn with the conversation, but uh, someone had mentioned that Celebrate Recovery or the 12-step program, their national statistics showing results as far as the success ratio. And in talking to the person, I said, you know, there are also a lot of testimonies of people who came to the Lord Jesus Christ. They heard the gospel message and the words of Scripture, and they were completely delivered. And that person said, no, there's no national statistics, no national study. If you could show me where it shows the statistics of people who hear the gospel and are delivered from alcohol versus a 12-step program, your comment. You know, one of the things that I look at is the change in a person's life over time. So if a person has a spiritual experience or a supernatural encounter where they feel delivered from um, alcoholism or uh, an addiction to pills or to you know to painkillers or to um, heroin or to some other um, you know IV drug use. Um, what I look at after they feel delivered from that and after they feel like they've been set free from the craving, how does their life change? So simply not using a substance doesn't mean that the person is recovering and healing. We have to look at, uh, you know, we look at taking on, and I think, you know, it's Paul who said that we take on the mind of Christ, that it's a new way of thinking. And out of that new way of thinking and relating comes a new way of behaving. So I've met some people who uh, say, you know, I, I haven't gone back to it. I don't want to go back to it. But they still have horrible relationships with their um, spouse 
or their significant other or their family members, or they are uh, doing things that don't exemplify or demonstrate a changed life. Uh, you know, we call those kinds of folks sometimes dry drunks. Um, they're dry, they're sober, but they still have all of this behavior that's unhealthy. So, yes. so, so that's what we want to look at. And that's really what any treatment program, whether it's a clinical program or a 12 step fellowship or celebrate recovery or smart recovery. I mean, there's all sort they're all, you know, today there are all these forms of, of ways that people can walk out their recovery. And these are support systems to help people change their lives. Uh, and to, to really change the way they're acting. And I think that that's what we have to look at. Um, that spiritual experience, that spiritual encounter, encounter is just the start. You know, where do you go from here? Is there any evidence? I mean, if people do look or they want some sort of statistical evidence to show 12-step programs versus the people who uh, believed in Jesus and were delivered, anything like that? You know, it, it, it's hard because uh, it depends on who's collecting the data. <laughs> so I would say, well, where do you get your information? You know, is this a uh, – and and the research on this subject is tough because, it, it, you know, it's estimated that approximately one in every three Americans has some type of addiction. But we're also talking about things like um, gambling. We're talking about, you know, compulsive shopping. Uh, we're talking about, uh, you mentioned pornography or people who can't stop watching porn, sex addiction, compulsive sexual behavior, or people um, with certain types of eating disorders can uh, actually be a form of food addiction. Uh, so one of the things that we want to look at is uh, where does the information come from? I have found that the people who are, tend to have lasting recovery are those who have some type of uh, medical treatment, clinical treatment, spiritual treatment, uh, some type of lifestyle treatment. And so I really take a holistic approach uh, where faith is incorporated because I find that faith, uh, and especially those who have a strong Christian faith, it can really be the missing ingredient to help keep them sober uh, and in, in the recovery process. Yes. We uh, will go through just some other ones we have here, that addiction is God's punishment or a sign of God's judgment. That's another misconception. Addiction is demon possession. Addiction doesn't happen to church people. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the misconceptions. Another uh, is once an addict is born again, she won't relapse. And the last one you wrote is prayer, Bible study, and right belief are enough to cure addiction. So many Christians are walking around with these misconceptions, and once again, the end result is condemnation or shame factor. And uh, it's interesting, though, when I think about your book, and again, it's called The Recovery-Minded Church, I wonder why this topic is not mentioned very often in the church. Uh, I go back to our previous discussion. I really think it's an issue of shame. I think that, well, and not just shame. I think there's ignorance. I think that oftentimes we don't know what to do with it. Uh, we don't know what to do with addiction or with these kinds of uh, behaviors. And we, we can't, you know, I've had so many people say to me, you know, I prayed to God, God deliver me, you know, Jesus forgive me, help me. And nothing happened. You know, I kept doing the same things over and over and over. Well, I mean, Goodness, the New Testament teaches that that's the state uh, that that's the state many of, of, of Paul, Paul said he found himself in. Uh, one of the great mysteries that you know I think theologians debate is what that state was that he was in. So I think that the scriptures offer uh, examples and stories to give people great hope of how to break free. But because we're ignorant and we don't know how to even start the conversation uh, in, 
in our congregations, uh, sometimes we just don't talk about it because we're afraid. Uh, so I think the fear of talking about it, not knowing what to do, you know, the shame, and it's still, and it's not just in the church. Let me be clear. I think it's still stigmatized in our in our culture. Um, you know, health care for people with addiction is still greatly underfunded in this mm. country. Um, and, and, and not just um, addiction, but the what we call the co-occurring disorders that go along with it, like depression and anxiety. Um, oftentimes, folks with addiction suffer from uh, they're medicating some other condition. And so we have to look at what are you using the substance or the behavior? What are you using the sex? What are you, what are you using the shopping? How are you using these things to self-medicate some other pain or disordered state in your life? Well, let's talk about that for just a minute because, you know, I'm trying to figure out what addiction really is, to be honest with you. Uh, people hear it and some people say, well, it's a physical, you know, or uh, a disease of the brain. Perhaps people are wired uh, with a, an addiction gene. And then, and then you kind of wonder, okay, a lot of people who have addiction issues suffer from trauma, usually from an early age. It could yes. be sexual abuse or physical abuse. And, and the way that I see it, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is – just not maybe being able to process and work through a lot of the trauma that they experienced as a child and maybe almost like being fixed, like, like, uh, you know, a record that just plays a song over and over and over again. You play that trauma, not being able to work through and process that. Uh, is it an escape? Is it a coping mechanism? What is addiction? I, I, I think it's – I say yes, yes, and yes to what you said. <laughs> it's, it's very much all of the above. So we, we know that addiction, that something is happening in the brain re regarding um, reward, uh, motivation, regarding memory, regarding uh, circuitry. We do know that on a, on a biological level uh, or a medical level. But we know that, that, that because of, of this disordered state in the brain and what's happening in the person, that there are uh, – uh, we can call them consequences, or there are manifestations which are also biological, psychological, social manifestations, social family upheaval, relational upheaval. And uh, I, I think the most important one are the spiritual manifestations. The person uh, who is suffering from a substance use disorder will often say, I don't, I don't know who I am anymore. I feel I, I've, I'm disconnected from myself, and I'm definitely disconnected from God. Um, there had been some brain scan studies that show that the parts of the brain that uh, show up when a person meditates and prays, that when a person is in the state of addiction, those parts of the brain actually don't work. And we know the person's heart is shut down. I've had uh, many, many times family members say to me, you know, I, I screamed at my kid or my husband or my wife and I said, what's happening to you? You know, you're not in your right mind. I don't know who you are anymore. And the person with addiction will say, you're right. I don't know who I am. And so, um, yes, this is a spiritual state of disorder. This is a, uh, a relational state of disorder. This is a, definitely psychological. The heart and the mind is being affected adversely. And we know that the body physically, biologically is being adver adversely affected as well. So when we treat it, we have to treat all of those levels. And this is where the church... I think ha has a great role spe specifically in working with uh, sort of the psycho-emotional aspects of healing and the spiritual healing that needs to take place. Yes, because Jonathan, you know, people who suffer from substance abuse, I'm sure they're surprised they go to detox and they take all the you know vitamins and get all these uh, terrible toxins out of their system. And then 
they go through a recovery program, and I don't even know the statistics. You can mention to me what they are as far as how many people pass through a recovery program successfully, but and then they go right back. It's almost like like doing a car flush or something, you know, and then you just expect that, okay, I'm a new person. I have my mind back now, and now I can think clearly again, so I never want to go through this again, right. and then they go through it again. I mean, that's that's got to be so confusing to be completely clean and rid of these toxins and then how quickly people go back. Yeah, I, I spoke to an individual last year who had 25 years of sobriety and uh, he said that one day uh, he he was he was very, very lonely, uh, woke up at like two or three in the morning feeling great despair, found himself buying a handle of vodka and drank after 25 years. And uh, he, he, you know, and I said, well, you know, what, what do you think happened? And say, and he, and he said, for him, it was a lack of um, community, a lack of spiritual community. Uh, and I think that, that this is the, the the thing that we can. It's almost like that thing can come back and and take over the person's life when they least expect it. And so, what a good recovery program does is it helps the person be mindful, but. Uh, you know, spiritual community is such an important part. And when an individual feels empowered to tell their story within the context of their spiritual community, I think that the, the chance of them relapsing or falling back into those old patterns are far less. Sometimes I wonder, too, uh, if you don't mind me trying to psychoanalyze, uh, is it a sense of entitlement, too? I mean, people say, I went through some trauma growing up or as a kid, and uh, you know what? I'm entitled to to go that direction and escape. I'm, I'm entitled to, to go for that substance because, man, I've suffered, and, uh, and don't try to stop me either. Entitlement is a huge part of it. Um, Self-pity is. Uh, anger and rage are also uh, big components uh, of addiction. Uh, and so I, I think that when we work with people who are suffering from that, uh, we, we have to be mindful. And definitely a person who is not working on their entitlement or their rage or their self-pity, um, they can be a setup to go back into those old patterns. And uh, again, you know, this is where a good program or recovery, this is where good clinical counseling can help. Uh, I know that many, I talk to many pastors who say, look, I'm not qualified to do intense trauma therapy. Um, you know, I can do counseling and support, but some of this stuff with trauma, I'm not trained to work in trauma. So I think one of the best things that a, 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 a pastor or a lay leader in a congregation can do or a minister or a priest or whoever it might be is to refer out and to know this is now something that is beyond my, my scope of influence and my scope of knowledge. So I'm going to help this person get to the um, professional can, that can help them with these severe underlying issues. Yeah, I'm sure that people from the church also don't want to touch this issue because there is a dark side to it all. I mean, there really is a people who are in crack houses and places that, you know, a normal person would not touch a 10 foot pole with. And uh, it can be very demonic even, you know, when you watch that show intervention and uh, on A&E that some of the, you, you just know that Satan is, is really working overtime with some of these folks to try to get them uh, in, in bondage and to, to really kill themselves, it seems. Well, and, you know, and now with the the internet, uh, there you know anything is accessible to us in our own home. So um, oftentimes pe- people find themselves locked in very destructive cycles um, of acting out, you know, sexually online, 
Um, and, and we find also some of the research is saying that the, the, the statistics of, uh, of women, you know, oftentimes we think of men with, this, with sexual compulsivity issues, but we're finding that women are suffering from it. Um, with online emotional romances and find themselves trapped in really difficult situations and yet can still show up to church on Sunday and you would never know that anything was the matter. Yeah, I mean, I've even heard some people take those little uh, bottles that they take in the airplane with them and maybe pretend they're coughing sometimes just to not go into a state of withdrawal. Have you ever seen anything like that? Uh, I have seen people who um, they, they know how to uh, use alcohol to medicate to uh, stave off their other symptoms. Uh, unfortunately, though, once they get to that, uh, that tends to be almost late state alcoholism or late stage alcoholism, rather. When they're at that stage, the biological uh, functioning in their, their body with their their uh, liver and, and things like that, uh, esophageal issues, things like that, um, they're in trouble. And then at that point, they really need a medical intervention as well. Yeah, so we're not going to leave our audience and you in this uh, in this dark state. We're, we're actually going to – yeah, right. We're going to find a little bit of resolve. Some of the things that you say that uh, the church and pastor should say to people who suffer from addiction that can bring them up. But before we do that, I want to ask uh, – why would you – well, let's just put it this way, okay? We talked about a dark side. The friends of people who suffer from addiction, they all kind of flock together, you know? It's almost like a little secret society that, that they understand one another, that uh, they have their smoke breaks together or they uh, – it's time to – May I say time to get high together or time to find a high together? And it, it seems really simple. Just cut these people out of your life. Uh, the people who love you the most are the people who staged an intervention for you. Now you're off drugs and you've gone through detox. Why go back to these friends? I mean, sometimes people say, well, you know, I was abused of a child and, and uh, I have a low self-esteem and they just go back. I know I'm kind of saying a lot here, but, but why stick with bad friends? Well, and that's why oftentimes it takes uh, – and you mentioned an intervention. One of the essential components of an intervention is getting the person into a different place, uh, changing the place because it's, we say people, places, and things is what will take a person back out. So they have to create new community. And so helping that person find a community that uh, is actually empowering them and not pulling them down – uh, it, it is very, very key, and it's very, very difficult. So oftentimes if someone does uh, elect or, or the family elects to send a person to treatment, this is why they go to a different part of the country. Um, oftentimes when I'm involved in assisting families with an intervention, um, I'll say we got to, you know, if they're in, uh, in New York, let's get them to Florida or to California, but let's not even take them to New Jersey or Connecticut. Let's get them somewhere, get them out of Dodge. Because yeah. you've got to get them to a new place to create new relationships to sustain uh, a new way of life. You know, I noticed a lot of people who suffer from substance abuse, they like to curse a lot. I mean, a lot of people do, but I think that people who suffer from substance abuse, and you correct me if I'm wrong, they just, every other word is a curse word. And I'm wondering if that's a way that, you know, not being able to process clearly through your emotions and describe and tell people how you're feeling, or even for them to be able to tell themselves how they're feeling, that they just kind of use a curse word as a crutch. Is that correct? Well, there, there's a lot of rage and anger with addiction. And so that rage and anger will definitely manifest 
through um, vulgar language at times. Uh, and, and so uh, we, we do see a lot of that in recovery communities. Uh, and part of that sometimes is, is getting it out. Uh, and so I often uh, will, will warn people, especially people who um, are not accustomed to that, look, if you're going to go to a, uh, a 12-step meeting, even an Al-Anon meeting, you need to be prepared that you might hear some words used that you might not hear in church um, or in your home fellowship or something like that. Is there a big difference between Celebrate Recovery and 12-step, or is it pretty much the same thing? Uh, there are differences. Um, the, the origins of Celebrate Recovery really don't come from uh, 12-step fellowships. Um, they, they are, and, and I won't go into the whole history, but there is a little bit of difference. But I found people, uh, I find uh, Christians in recovery, some prefer the uh, AA or NA, others prefer Celebrate Recovery. Um, I always uh, encourage people to do what works for them. If AA is not working for you, then do Celebrate Recovery or something else and vice versa. But find what works for you and go with it. Yeah, so before mm – And just let me add, I I don't want to – it's not one-size-fits-all recovery. Um, I I think that that while in our human nature and even in our sin nature, we're all very much alike – um, people are different, and there are cultural differences, and there are things that work for different kinds of people. So I really encourage people to find what works for them and do it. Yes, and we want to get to the positive stuff, which we promised, as far as uh, making people realize that, that they are loved, in fact. But I, before I get to that, again, I want to mention one last thing. Yes, we mentioned there's a dark side, but how do people who suffer from addiction respond to hearing God's word, the Scripture? Because a lot of times in recovery, they hear... A lot of uh, psychology, a lot of uh, different kind of life coaching and so forth. But is it different when all of a sudden they hear the gospel message or they hear the words of Scripture? Uh, how do they respond? Well, I, I think it depends on the, the condition of the person's heart and if they're ready. Um, you, you know, my bias is that any any work of salvation is a work of grace and is a work of the Spirit and not a work of man. Um, or woman, I should add. Uh, and so for me, I really try to cooperate with the Spirit to see where a person is at. And I trust that the same Spirit that's at work in my life uh, is also at work in, an, in the person with addiction, bringing them to the place where they need to be. So I have been in uh, 12-step meetings and in Celebrate Recovery meetings and different kinds of recovery meetings where uh, – Yes, there was psychology and there was, as you say, life coaching principles shared, but there was a, a life in the spirit and an aliveness that rivaled any of the best church services that I've ever been at. Hmm. And I have encountered God uh, and the spirit in the rooms of AA and NA and other recovery circles and even in treatment centers in a way that astounded me. And I have found that the Holy Spirit is active and alive, not just in the church, but outside of the church, drawing people uh, to who Jesus is. And that is the work that I trust. And that's the work of the Spirit that I trust uh, in people's lives. So on this note you mentioned, now we've gotten to it, here are some suggestions for what we can and should say to addicts looking like the rest of us for unconditional love and acceptance. Okay, here we go. You have been made for so much more life and love than what your addiction has taught you to expect for yourself. That's something you can say. The other, God loves you just as you are, regardless of what you've done or are doing or will do. I wish we'd hear more of that in the church. 
God forgives you. And where you can make amends to the people you have wronged without causing further harm to them or yourself, do so. Leave the rest to God. Tomorrow is a new day. Just a few more, and then you could elaborate. Welcome. Uh, That's a nice thing to hear from the church. Welcome. We want you here. And then lastly, to say you have a chronic disease, and we believe God wants you to find recovery, and so do we. We will walk with you every step of the way, not just on the good days. So choose the ones that stood out the most to you, and uh, go ahead. Uh, You know, I want to hear all of those things when I go to church. And so these messages are things that we want as human beings, whether we are suffering from addiction or not. And if I feel that way, how much more important is it for a person suffering from addiction to feel that way when they enter our congregations? Um, That we create spaces where they can be a part and where they're not just tolerated, but they are fully accepted and embraced. I agree with that. You know, I just got this memo and I hope you don't mind. I'd like to read it. It says... God loves sinners. Look at that. Yeah. You know, sometimes we, <laughs> sometimes that we forget to share that message, that's for sure. And uh, once again, uh, joining us here is uh, Jonathan Benz. He's got a great book. We recommend the church buy it and Christians buy it to become more sensitive to people who suffer from substance abuse. And you may have uh, friends or family who suffer from that. It's called The Recovery-Minded Church, Loving and Ministering to People with addiction we've sure enjoyed having you on the program and uh, there's stories of redemption all over you get to be a part of that thank you so much thank you 